I've been wondering how to try to um, summarize all of this in one sentence. It's a challenge I give myself every sermon. If I can't boil my whole sermon down to one sentence that makes sense and is clear, then I haven't done my job yet. And so here's what I would like to begin by saying to try to summarize all of this this morning. The good news of Christmas is for those who are tired of seeing sin and bad news everywhere, especially in themselves. This is the third Sunday now in our focus on that central and most important part of Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, where he left heaven, took on human flesh, walked among us for 33 years, went to the cross and died for our sin, rose again, and ascended back to the Father. I've tried to take a different look at all of that this Christmas. The first Sunday, we looked at the mystery of the incarnation. Last Sunday, we looked at the cost of the incarnation. And today, I want to try to focus our thoughts on what I've called the comfort of the incarnation. That doesn't really make a lot of sense now. I hope it will in in just a few minutes, the comfort of the incarnation. I think it's safe to say that we would certainly fall short in our understanding and our appreciation of Christmas and what the incarnation means if we only focused on the birth of Christ. Frankly, that's where most of the world starts and stops in their thoughts uh, of what this season means. But we would be missing out on uh, the, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, if we stopped at the birth of Christ. There is, uh, there is another promise of, of uh, hope and comfort that Christ's coming into the world brings to us. And it's the part that we have yet to experience, but we will one day. And that is his coming again. How tragic it would be for us to have the gospel story and for it to help us no further than the grave in this life. How hopeless it would be to live this entire life fighting and clawing our way through all of the issues of life, knowing in the back of our mind that it really is pointless at the end of the day, that all of this means nothing when it's all said and done. Frankly, I'm not sure I would want to go on. But there is a far greater promise that we have that is brought to us in the incarnation of Christ. His first coming promises us that he is coming again. And if you and I somehow choose to or manage to live every day of this life without ever leaning on that promise for hope and comfort, then I don't know how you make it through. Because there are days when I selfishly and wimpishly say, Lord, please come right now. 
The message of Christmas, the gospel, not only brings us comfort right now in this fallen world day by day, but it also gives us comfort and hope and promise for the world to come. It's probably safe to say that you and I are already um, surrounded by enough battles in this fallen world, and we certainly don't wish for any more to come our way. But try to imagine how much harder our life would be. Now, this is really a stretch for us Americans, because we live in a nation that has been free since its inception. That is rare in the world. Uh, We see other countries today that are literally teetering on the edge of not being free anymore. When you have a, a president or a prime minister who says publicly that the people who don't go along with his agenda are taking up space and should be done away with, you realize these are, these are strange times. But you and I have a hard time, I think, putting ourselves in this scenario I'm about to describe because, you know, freedom for us is... Uh, is just like our next breath. We, we don't have to pay anything for it. We don't have to strive for it. We, we don't have to defend it. It's just here so far. But try to imagine how much harder life would be if all of us tonight were woken up in the middle of the night, forced from our homes, carted away by an invading army, and made to live under an oppressive regime And in the midst of your daily exile there, in the midst of your grief, you knew, deep down inside, you knew that this catastrophe was not the result of a weak military who couldn't defend the country. It wasn't the result of uh, a failure in foreign policy negotiations, but rather you knew that our sins had put us there. And you had to live every day under this evil regime as a captive, knowing that your choices and your rebellion put you there. That is precisely the situation that God's people found themselves in. And it's that dark moment in history that Isaiah is about to address. God's people had been taken prisoner. They had been carried away. They had been forced to live under the rule of one of their worst enemies. They had to learn to carry on somehow in that foreign land, hopeless and grief-stricken and despondent, knowing that their sin had brought them this low and that they ultimately had no one to blame but themselves. Sin had destroyed them. They had destroyed themselves, and they had squandered all their God-given privileges and blessings. Well, the truth is, while it's okay for us to imagine such a scenario, the truth is you and I don't have to be carted away as prisoners to a foreign land in order to experience what it's like to live under the consequences of our sin. We experience that 
Every time we choose to turn away from God, to go our own way, to try to live without him, because that in itself is bondage. That in itself is living in exile, separated from the one who made us and loves us. And if we have any sensitivity at all toward the heart of God, those times of being away from him cause us to ache, to groan, to weep over our sinful choices, and to long to return home to him. Well, after generations of rebellion, God's people are now groaning under the awareness of their sin. They finally had something come into their lives that was bad enough to shake them and cause them to wake up and realize that all of these warnings God had been sending to them for years through the prophets, they had now come true. And they were now tasting the the bitter fruit of their own sowing for years. And they groaned under the reality of their sin and the consequences that their sin had brought upon them. They realized the foolishness of their choices. And in this foreign land, they longed to be redeemed and restored to what they once had. And so the verses we're going to look at today were not, were not only music and comfort and hope to the ears of those people, but they should be music and comfort and hope to our ears as well, because we are, as followers of Christ, we are forced to live here in this land that is not our home, a land where we are foreigners and strangers, where we are the outsiders, where where we feel the grief and the heartache and the consequences of our sin. These words of Isaiah foretell of a time when those people and all of us will finally be delivered from the muck and the mire of sin, and all things will be made new. Now, before we read these verses in Isaiah 40, it's, it's vital that we understand the timing and the context of this. As we've seen in our study through the Bible, Israel has split apart. They fought amongst each other. They are now living in a divided nation, north and south, Israel and Judah, This is never what God intended, but this is what their sin had done to them. They had turned their hearts away from God. They were trusting in their own wealth and luxury. And it was in this time that prophets like Amos and Hosea had come along and spoken to them as they were living in the lap of luxury and freedom, warning them that Judgment was coming, and we've looked at both of those prophets, and that's why I uh, timed those before the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah came just a little after that. So those prophets had come, and they had warned of judgment, but the people had repeatedly ignored the warnings. No, 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 not for me, not today, I got nothing to worry about. So God sends the Babylonian Empire to attack these people, to destroy their land, and to cart them away in exile 
to Babylon for 70 years. And there in that forgotten land, God's people are forced to live under the weight of knowing that it was their sin that had brought this judgment upon them. And after years of this, their hearts were weary. They knew they deserved every bit of this. And they wondered if God would ever remember them. Maybe, maybe that's where you are this Christmas. Maybe you have wandered so far from God that Satan has whispered to you and convinced you God's never coming back for you. He has no interest in you anymore. You're doomed. I want you to know there's hope beyond your situation today. So it's into that setting that God speaks the following words to his people through Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. What a statement. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm going to pause there and I'll finish up the, the remaining verses just before we close today. Notice the word that stands out, that first word, comfort. It's repeated twice. He says it twice. In that day, um, when they were writing, they couldn't simply click on their mouse and make a word bold or underlined or italic. And so the way a writer would emphasize a word was to repeat it. And we see this throughout the Bible. Absalom, Absalom. When Christ was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's repeated three times in the Bible in one place. Holy, holy, holy. We all love that word comfort. In fact, if we're honest, we would have to admit that a huge portion of our lives are spent pursuing comfort. There's nothing wrong with that to, to a point. I mean, no one wants to wear the itchy sweater. We'd all rather wear a comfortable sweater. Remember that day I was up here and I had a new shirt on, and under the heat of the lights, the, the ink started bleeding into my skin and, and itching me? That it was, you know, nobody wants to be uncomfortable. I gave that shirt away, by the way. Poor sucker who got that one. <laughs> yeah. No one likes sitting in the uncomfortable seat in the car for a nine-hour ride. We'd, we'd much rather have a comfortable seat. That's normal. But the word 
comfort here that God is using the way that he's speaking this word to his people is much better. It's much deeper. It's much richer than any comfort that you and I can find in this physical world. And I want to look at that in just a moment. But, but let me quickly point out two other statements of comfort here in verse 1 that are generally overlooked. I've never heard a sermon on these two statements, but I, I just it moved me so much in preparing this this week. Notice in verse 1 those two little statements, my people and your God. My people and your God. How comforting it must have been for these rebellious, wayward people after 39 chapters of sin and judgment, to actually hear God say once again to them, you are still my people and I am still your God. That just blew me away. Literally 39 chapters of disobedience and the promise of coming judgment. 39 chapters. You would think at that point, God would say, I am done with you. But God steps in to their misery and their sin and their waywardness. And he says, despite it all, you are still my people. And I am still your God. Could sweeter words ever fall on the ears of a sinner? Knowing that he has, he's pushed God away, he's reveled in his sin, but after being humbled and broken, he hears these comforting words and realizes with grateful disbelief that even though he abandoned God, God has not abandoned him. Every one of us, every one of us has more than once received that kind of lavish grace from God. Well, notice what he says next in the second part of verse 2. He says, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. If there's anything that jumps off the pages of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it is that you and I, by our sinful nature, are at war with God. Let's not uh, relegate what has happened so far to uh, ancient times and think that this warfare is just describing what those sinful people did. This describes our condition. It describes the human condition. All of us, because of our sinful nature, all of us are at war with God. Yet Isaiah prophesies that a day is coming when the warfare will end. See, something very powerful has overcome us to end this warfare, and that power is the cross of Christ. On the cross, Christ forever, he defeated the power of sin. He, he broke the chains that enslaved us. He won the war that we could not win. But his victory uh, didn't stop there. It goes on in verse 2, it says, Her iniquity is pardoned, 
for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You may say, whoa, wait a minute. They, they had to pay twice for their sin. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem like something God would do. Well, we don't have time to go back into all this, but there were laws in the old covenant that required a person to pay back double for certain crimes that they had committed. They had to pay back double for the offense that they had caused to, to make absolutely clear and sure uh, that they were making up for what they had done. But that's not what Isaiah is saying here. These prophetic words that Isaiah is speaking here are all, let's not miss this, all these words are pointing ahead to the atoning work of Christ. And we'll see that very, very clearly in just a second. When, when we think of the death of Christ on the cross, when we think of the blood that he shed for us, when we think of who he is and who we were, surely we can say that we've received double. We've received far more than what we deserve. He died the death we should have died. He bore the punishment that should have been ours. I mean, if just a, I don't know how to say this, if, if just a normal human being had gone to the cross and died for us in our place, that in itself would have been considered far more than we deserve. But the one who died for us was the Prince of Glory. He was the innocent Son of God. His death carried far more meaning and value and weight than the death of a normal person. We saw last week the cost of the incarnation, all that he gave up for us. The value of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, folks, it is incalculable. This is why we must guard ourselves to never let his sacrifice slip from our mind. We must never let that be erased from our balance sheet. We must always keep that as part of everything we think and do. Because it is incalculable what he did for us. It's like if a little girl had a lemonade stand in her front yard. You know, as I say that, I, Sandy will know exactly what I'm thinking. When, when Caroline and Nick were little, Caroline decided, uh, you know, she's the entrepreneur one. She, she decided she was going to start a lemonade business. So she, she got all the stuff together. Boy, made it fancy. She put a table out there and a big sign. And they had our, our golden retriever out there, Rusty, with him. And, and so Nick went out, and he's really little. And uh, they're standing there, and the first car comes by and stops. Guy gets out and buys a cup of lemonade. Nick starts packing everything up. <laughs> Caroline says, what are you doing? He said, well, we sold one. This is what are we going to do, stand out here all day? So, but it's, it's like if a little girl set up a lemonade stand in her front yard and a car came by and stopped and a man got out and he bought a cup and he, he gave her a million dollars for it. She would say, wow, I got way more than I should have for that. I was given way more than it was worth. Isaiah 61, 7 continues this theme of them getting double back for their sins. It says, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. What kind of God is this? Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. 
And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Do you hear the heart of God in this? Christ's death on the cross didn't just barely bring us salvation. It gave us everything we didn't deserve, and it withheld from us everything we did deserve. Can I say that again? Christ's death on the cross gave us everything we didn't deserve, and it withheld from us everything we did deserve. Psalm, uh, Psalm 103 verse 10 sums this up beautifully. It says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Yeah, he does not repay us according to what our sins deserve Ezra 9.13 says, You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and you have given us such deliverance as this. Do we understand the comfort that this should bring us? Not the kind of comfort that would give us an easy, trouble-free life. That is so shallow. That's stopping so short of what God has for us. I'm talking about the eternal comfort that comes from knowing that sin's power has been conquered, its penalty has been removed, its price has been paid. We don't, um, we don't quote all the catechisms here in this church because I don't want us to look at man-made documents to teach from rather than teaching from the word of God. However, I'm not against all the catechisms. I, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism has some wonderful things in it. Here's an example thinking of this topic right here. It says, question and then answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? How would you answer that? Well, here's the answer they give, and it's epic. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's pretty good. You see, Isaiah 40 is not just some old, dusty chapter in the Bible. Isaiah 40 is the gospel for Isaiah's day and for our day. It is the promise of what is to come. It is the promise that through all of our waywardness, all of our disobedience, God is faithful and he will do what he has promised to do for his people. Well, verses uh, three through five, we look at verse three and starting there in verse three, we can really see how Specifically, these words are pointing ahead to the incarnation, to the coming of Christ. See if these words sound familiar to you. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert 
a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted or raised, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places will be made smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. Uh, In the New Testament, all four of the gospel writers refer to this verse, Isaiah 40, verse 3, uh, and link it to John the Baptist, who, of course, was the one who uh, came and prepared the way for Jesus. John the Baptist quoted this verse as well, Isaiah 43. So it's very clear that what Isaiah was saying back there was not just for that time. He was, as the Old Testament does, he was pointing forward to the one uh, who would come. Now, saying that every valley will be raised and every mountain and hill will be brought low is a term used to describe how the workmen were to go out and prepare the roads for a coming dignitary or royalty who was going to be passing through that way. They would go out and make sure that the roads were clear, that it wasn't rough and rocky, that it was smooth. In other words, it's, it's rolling out the red carpet. And it's going out and preparing the way for this royalty who was to come through their town. They, they wanted everything to be perfect. They wanted his pathway to be straight and smooth. But God here obviously isn't talking about actual roads. He's saying, prepare your hearts. He's saying, smooth out the rough places. Clear away any hindrances in your life so that Christ can come and rule in you. As Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Get rid of the things that are in the way. Clear out the blockages. Fill in the holes. Remove the rough places so that Christ can come and rule in your life. I said at the beginning that Christmas is good news for those who are tired of seeing sin and bad news everywhere, especially in themselves. If that's you this morning... I invite you to prepare the way for the Savior to come in. Maybe you this morning, you've never come to Christ. You've never surrendered your life to him. And there are so many things in your life that need to be straightened out. There are so many crooked roads that need to be made straight. So, So many holes that need to be filled in. So many rocks and tree branches and things that need to be cleared out of the way. You've got all this mess in your life. Does that mean cleaning up your life and making yourself, um, you know, presentable to him? No, 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 no. He will do that part for you. But there must be a preparing on our part. We must make ready ourselves, our heart, to receive him as Lord and Savior. There, There must be a humbling on our part, a repenting of our sin, and a crying out to him for mercy and salvation. If you're there this morning, I encourage you, don't stay where you are. 
Do what Jesus said in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. You hear your part? Open the door. That requires humbling. It requires confession that you are a sinner before God and that you need his salvation. I encourage you this morning, if that's you, prepare the way. Just right now, even in this moment, say, God, I'm, I'm clearing out the path. The best I understand how I'm, I'm opening the path of my heart to you. I'm inviting you to come in and rule in my life. By the way, there will be uh, prayer partners available after the service if you're there and you would like someone to pray with you about that. Um, I think when people hear the word incarnation, you know, we've been, we've been focusing on this now for three weeks. As I said earlier, I think most people, when they hear that word, only think of the birth of Christ. But it means much more than that. His incarnation not only means that he has come, it means that he is coming again. Jesus himself said in John 14.1, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, by the way, can I just pause there? Uh, why did Jesus say that? Was he just filling up time? Well, I pro probably should say something clever. No. You know why he said that? Because their hearts were troubled. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he said, Behold, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus prayed that epic prayer in John 17. He said, Father, I want them to be with me where I am. Do we understand the grace in that statement? There are people... Nobody here, but there are people who irritate the life out of me. Nobody here, as far as you know. There are people who have wronged me. There are people who have cheated me. There are people who have lied about me, just like in your life. And you know what? Honestly, I don't really like being around those people. I don't want them to be where I am. Should God not feel that way a million times over about us? And yet he doesn't. Because God doesn't love like we love. He is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. He's the very source and definition of pure, true love. He wants us to be with him for all eternity. Because through Christ, he remembers our sins no more. 
because of the incarnation, because Christ came. All who put their faith in him now stand before a holy God, completely righteous. I can tell you, if I lived another thousand years, I could spend every day trying to figure that out, and it would still elude me. It's beyond me. And yet, because of Christ, God sees us as perfect and holy and sinless and righteous. And he says, oh, I want so much for you to be with me. Over and over in the Old Testament, God said, I will be their God and they will be my people. He has come and he is coming again to take us with him where he is. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended back to heaven and the disciples and his followers were standing there, staring up into the sky with their mouths open as every one of us would have been. It says this, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. He will come again. This is the promise of the incarnation. This is the promise of his coming. He came once and he will come again. This is our hope. This is our comfort in this life. We know that as we live this life and, and we slog through every day and you, know, you, you moms chase the kids around the house all day and your whole life is made up of dirty diapers and dirty dishes and dirty laundry and you wonder, is there any point to all of this? Yes, there is. You men who go to work in that office or that factory and you're surrounded by godless people and every day you think, is this all there is? I'm going to get up and do this for 50 years. Is there any point to this? Yes, there is. There's a point to this life so much bigger than anything you can find or accomplish or attain here. It's that he is coming again to take us with him, to be with him forever. Surely, surely, with that comfort and that hope in mind, surely all of us can make it through 60 or 70 or 80 years of this life, knowing what is to come. Surely we can. And I will tell you, I have days when I want to give up, especially this year. I'm still not over this. I just, I still can't get out of this slump physically that I'm in. I'm going, I have four doctor visits this week to try to figure out and get me amped back up. And and I'm telling you, I'm weary. There were days when I think, what is all this for? This is pointless. I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. On those days, I need you 
to remind me, like I try to remind you, our hope is not in the things we can see and feel here. Our hope is in the promise of his coming. That all who have put their faith in Christ will be with him forever. And all things will be made new. These words should bring us such comfort and such hope as we live in this fallen world. None of us needs to be convinced how frail we are as human beings, how real our warfare is down here, how sinful this world is and how brief our life really is. And as we look As we look forward to that time that will come after all the battles and heartaches and suffering in this life, it's this hope that we can hold on to and we can be certain and we can be sure of it. I finish with the remaining verses in Isaiah 40 that we were going to look at. Just follow along or listen to these. Isaiah 40, verse 6. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You see, people, people come and go like grass and flowers. We soon wither and fade off the scene, but God and his word stand forever. And because he kept his promise about coming the first time, we can be absolutely certain that he is coming again. And what a glorious coming that will be. Do you know what Christmas really is, folks? It's good news for sinners like us. That's what it is. Because he came, we have the comfort of knowing that our sins are forgiven that God's wrath has been satisfied and that Satan has been defeated. And because he's coming again, we have the comfort of knowing that this life is not all there is, that one day all things will be made new and our king will rule and reign in righteousness and justice forever. And in light of the world we live in, that is the most wonderful promise imaginable for us to eagerly anticipate. So I pray that this Christmas will be a little different for you as we think about the incarnation. We rejoice in his coming. 
and we eagerly anticipate his coming again. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded that the word hope in the Bible um, does not mean what our hope means. We, we hope that it won't rain this Saturday because we have some things planned, but we don't know for sure if it will or not. Or the hope in the Bible is talking about something that is guaranteed and we are simply waiting for it eagerly. Lord, for thousands of years, the the people in the Old Testament heard about this one who would come all the way back from Genesis 3.15, like we looked at, the promise of a conqueror who would come, who would crush the head of Satan. And they waited and waited and waited, and they clung to that promise. And it seemed like it would never happen. But as Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He did come. That Savior did come. You kept your word. And now, Lord, we live in the age where we can look back on that with certainty, with proof, with evidence We know that he came, and so, Lord, now we look forward to his coming again. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us in this sin-filled world with no hope beyond this life and the grave. Thank you for the promise of your incarnation that you will come again. This time you will not come as a helpless baby. You will come as a mighty warrior. And you will vanquish all our foes. You will wipe all tears away from our eyes. You will rule and reign forever. Lord, we, we long for that day when all things will be made new. But until then, Lord, would you keep us faithful? We are so faithless. We need power of your Holy Spirit to keep us faithful. Lord, we ask for whatever time each of us has left, whether it's a day, whether it's 30 years. Lord, we just, we just ask that you would keep our eyes focused on the promise of your coming and keep us faithful that you would be glorified through each day of our lives. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. We thank you for all that that means to us. I pray it would have special meaning for us this year. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina. 29616 USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. 